to say you can be seated, but I thought we got taken care of already. Um, so we're doing okay. We're doing all right overall. Yay, nay. Scale of one to ten. Seven. Oh wow. Okay. Seven. Five. I heard. Come on. Way to, way to split the middle on that one. Um, Six point five. Good. Good. So really, everyone's doing excellent. If I got over a seven, I mean, <laughs> can't get that. Okay. Those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the RUF campus minister. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. And we are a Christian campus ministry at New Mexico State that exerves it, that serves to exist, excuse me, exist to serve, I got that now, New Mexico State and you all. Let me tell you a little bit about RUF and New Mexico State. It exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for those who take their coffee black, and those who take a little bit of hot cocoa with their half and half and whipped cream. <laughs> Both. For the student who works two jobs, takes a full class load, and is on the board of every single student organization. And the student who barely goes to class, doesn't do homework, and is pretty much ready to rewrite TV Guide and the codes to every major video game and computer game <laughs> in existence. And REF exists for those who think the Bible is all too human, and for those who think that the Bible, though written by humans, is made in God. So what does that mean? In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. Uh, we hope you get to know REF and REF gets to know you. Uh, what that means is if you've been to REF for a while, introduce yourself to somebody new. Somebody maybe that you've seen and you don't really know how to say hi to because you've forgotten their name. Just be bold and courageous and do it, okay? Ask them about life. Get curious about their life. Um, it's important. Okay. Also, for those of you who are new to REF, this is your first time. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, the pressure is off on you. Okay. Chill out. Relax. Um, we're so excited. We know it's a bold step to take to come to REF for the first time. So, thanks for coming. All right. Let's talk about announcements again because we revisit announcements twice in REF. Uh, because I like to beat dead horses. Okay, so, um, look, if there's a sign up that we can pass around, do we have a pen for this bad boy? Are we penless? I'll just borrow the worship team's pen. Let's hope they don't make notes at the end here. So, Hannah, can you pass that around? This is for people, it's a sign up for your email. If you sign up for it, please don't sign up again, unless you want several emails. Um, and... This is an email just basically that tells you what's going on, large group, social events, recess, whatever it is. And also we have a uh, Facebook site, which is NMSU RUF. You can check that out, join on there. Um, there's always some fun stuff posted on the walls, and it's a good way to keep in touch as well. Also, t-shirts, did we see those? Um, they were holding hands. Well, they didn't have hands, but they would have been had they been holding hands. Um, does that make sense? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> so, it's all right. Well, let's hope that's the least clear thing I'm going to say. So, anyway, the RF t-shirts are $12, people. I mean, RF's not making a profit on this. We're just floating goodness to you in the form of a t-shirt. It's three-quarter length sleeve. Keeps your elbows warm. Lets your wrists cool. Um, so, check it out. It's wonderful. Um, I literally was at a meeting in Phoenix, and I gave the t-shirt off my back to somebody because it was that cool. So there's demand in Phoenix, I'm just saying. 
it's gonna it's gonna trickle up the list of and we're just gonna it's gonna be over. <laughs> okay, so um, before that happens, you better get one. So because I'm just gonna keep giving away off my back, and there won't be any left. So please extra large. Uh, finally, ministry team folks, um, if you're on ministry team right now, can you stand up? So hey, can we just give them a round of applause? Unsung heroes, okay? They make RUF work. Imagine if RUF was up to me. <laughs> just do that thought of experience for about five seconds. Now you realize why ministry team is so essential, okay? So they do a lot of what behind the scenes makes things work. I mean, you can compare it if you're, if you're a football person, the offensive line, okay? They do a lot of the grunt work, but they do a lot of the things that make RUF happen. Um, so we're thankful for them. And, but ministry team isn't some secret cult that you get like tapped and you get a nomination or something. Okay, it's actually just something that you're invited to. All of you, if you've been around RUF for a while, if you've been around New Mexico State for a while, um, and if you believe in Jesus, and if you believe in what RUF is doing in the name of Jesus on the campus, um, come talk to me. RUF, the ministry team might be for you. Okay, um, it's a wonderful opportunity to learn how to do ministry. That is how to serve other people in the name of Jesus. And um, how to do the things like Bible study leading and worship team music stuff that, um, if you have that skill set, come talk to me as well. So I'm not going to plug that, just come. You got my stuff probably. If you need my email or phone number, get it from somebody who looks already experienced. Um, whatever else, okay? So finally, International Lights afterwards. Are we ready? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, <laughs> can I buy a break in here? <laughs> um, so, come on. You know, like, coffee. It's expensive but beautiful. Um, Turkish techno. Uh, I mean, it's outside. It's like 95 degrees outside. But it's hopefully like 60 now because we live in the desert. So, anyway, it's a great opportunity to get to know some people. Uh, sometimes this venue can feel a little intimidating. It's a great opportunity to, to get to know some folks. Uh, if you need directions to arrive, come talk to me. All right, so enough of the announcements rehashed. Let's talk about what we're talking about, which is Colossians. The book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, that's what we've been studying this entire semester. And I have a week left, and if you'll notice, I have lots to cover next week, um, <laughs> which will be exciting. But um, my best attempt at a title for the study of Colossians really kind of captures what we've been talking about for weeks. So if you're new, you haven't missed that much if you get this title. What if enough was actually enough? How Jesus is everything we ever really wanted and needed anyway. Okay, so what if enough was actually enough? How Jesus is everything we ever really wanted and needed anyway. And that's really what the book, I think of the book of Colossians, Paul's letters driving at from start to finish. It's how Jesus is enough, and then what it looks like to live as if Jesus is enough. That's really what we're getting at. But, as usual, before we dive into our passage tonight, which is about slavery, uh, so, um, you can say a prayer right now, if that's how you lean. Um, but, let me tell you a little bit about where we've been. Alright, so, Paul, Jesus' follower, a uh, guy who saw Jesus resurrected personally, writes to this group of people called the Colossians. Uh, and they live in what is modern-day Turkey, in the southwest corner, uh, in a town called Colossa, hence Colossians. And Paul's writing under God's inspiration to these people and to us about what the gospel is. The gospel is the central message of Christianity, 
It tells us who Jesus really is and what he's really done for us. And so this letter started out in chapter 1 with some introductions, right? Remember this? Hey, I'm Paul. Hey, you're the Colossians. Nice to meet you. There's this guy named Jesus. You should meet him too. He's fun and also life-changing um, at the same time. And then we go into chapter 2, verse 6, and we see this trait. Paul starts to trace what it looks like, the shape of the Christian gospel-centered life, right? And we see in chapter 2 how not to live, what we would call like fake religiousness. Fake religiosity, is that a word? Um, anyway, so we see what not to do. And then in chapter 3, we see what to do, how to live, right? And we see, beginning in chapter 3, what it looks like, true humanity and true love and practice. All right? So, our passage tonight, in chapter 3, continues this positive description of how to live. And I want you to see that Paul is at great pains to show us how Jesus motivated love works in ordinary, everyday relationships. So he's not talking about something outside of our experience. He's talking directly to our experience. And that's why I think it's so irritating. Okay, that's why it so, confronts us in so many ways. Because Paul is relationship picture painting. Okay? Paul is, in verse 18, and through our passage today, is talking about how different genders relate, especially in marriage, than how different ages relate, especially in families. And now he's talking about how different social statuses relate, especially in the workplace. So you see verse 22, there's a shift. This is, by the way, my whole justification why I couldn't tackle slavery two weeks ago, but never mind. Um, so you see there's a shift from in verse 22 from looking homeward, like to family, to marriage, and now he's looking outward into the workplace. Okay? Does everyone see that shift? That's what we're going to talk about. Um, and so if you'd like to observe what love looks like in the outside world, in your workplace, in your school, uh, this is a great opportunity to do that, as surprising as it looks. So, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through Colossians 4.1, or in your little blue bulletin on the inside right, and would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Understanding, um, I want to point out a few things. The letter to Colossians is somewhere between Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. If you go past Romans and you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far, okay? Somewhere between those two. And it's in the New Testament, the last quarter of the Bible. So we're going to focus on Colossians 3.22 through 4.1. But I'm going to start with 18, verse 18 for context. Remember, I'm tackling, like, it's April, I'm tired, you're tired, and here I am tackling social issues that are very difficult. Isn't that fun? But here's, here's what we're doing, okay? So this is what the Bible has to say to us. And so I'm going to begin in, in chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And now here's our passage. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Friends, these are the words of the Lord, and they are more precious 
They're more precious even than gold, even much fine gold. And they're sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I pray that you would do something wonderful and surprising. I pray that you would um, penetrate our hearts in the still air, that you would move us in our minds, move us in our hands and our feet with your gospel, with your, your message of how much, at what cost you love your people. I pray, Father, that Jesus would be high and lifted up and not me. And I pray that this really difficult chapter, this really difficult section, would be understandable. That it would be clear that your word and that your character would triumph over our doubts and our suspicions. And I pray, Father, that we would not leave this room until we see you and your beauty and your goodness and your truth, and that it changes us to become more beautiful, more true, and more good. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You be seated. Is it just is it extremely hot in here? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just wanted to kind of confirm that. So, um, yeah, if you need to ban yourself, that's totally appropriate. Like like some sort of southern wedding uh, <laughs> funeral. Um, so speaking of weddings, have you have any have any of you been to a wedding recently? Semi recently. Okay. What do you remember from it? Vows? The dress, maybe, if that's how you're wired. The food. Here's what I remember the dancing. Okay? <laughs> this is what I remember is the dancing. Let me explain. After the ceremony and the I do's, the pronouncement of man and wife, the reception begins and the people pile onto the dance floor. And they begin to socialize and eat. And as this dance floor opens up, and the party really begins, right? Before the bad break dancing and the drunken uncles. <laughs> Before the cute little flower girls and the brave little ring bearers get together and dance the night away and put us all to shame with their, with their freedom. <laughs> dance floor. Um, there are those traditional dances. Well, here's what I mean by traditional dances. I mean like the first dances, you know, it opens the dance floor. Right, the bride and the groom dance, then the bride and her father dance, and then sometimes you have the best man and the maid of honor dance. Right? Have you seen that kind of happen? Have you seen? Do you remember that vaguely? Um, now, if you watch those dances closely, you'll notice that something's very obvious but very important. Right? These dances are all extremely different. They're not different in steps. Okay? They're also different in tone and flavor. Look, think about it. The bride dances with her groom, with her now husband, differently than she dances with her dad. Thank God. <laughs> it's true. She leans in a little bit more. She's a bit more snuggly and affectionate with the groom than she is with her dad. He's like a, a little bit more stiffer and formal. Okay, That's kind of what's going on there. And that really only makes sense, right? And now compare that snuggly affection and that stiff formality with the way that the best man and the maid of honor dance, right? Um, you'll find some friendliness, maybe even some formality. And depending on how romantic the wedding was and how good the food was, maybe, um, you'll find some affection. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a desire for some hot and heavy lust going on uh, between the two partners. But mostly, mostly what you're going to find when the maid of honor and the, and the best man dance 
you're just going to feel awkward for them, right? <laughs> Aren't you? Isn't that sort of the, that's sort of the center scene? It's supposed to represent like how everyone at the wedding is supposed to like each other, but you've all kind of taken sides from the beginning, right? I mean, there's the bride side and the groom side, and then all of a sudden you're supposed to form this third team. That's the bride slash groom team, and everyone's supposed to be on board, but you've you've really picked you picked your person, okay? Especially if you're the best man of maid of honor, okay? You're like number one fan. You've got the foam finger, okay? You're waving that thing around, and now all of a sudden you're supposed to like dance with the other person with the other foam finger. That's really difficult. Not to mention the logistics of foam fingers, but uh, we just have to understand that they're usually not friends. The maid of honor and the best man. They're usually friends of friends. And here's my point, right? So you're sort of saying, what is he talking about? Uh, what am I getting at? Look, I know this is the second opening of a, of, a, of a talk that I've given in like the last couple times that has begun with a wedding. But here's what I'm not saying. I'm not secretly winking and nudging at the people who are dating to get engaged. Pronto. I'm not doing that, okay? It's not like, oh, weddings, you know, go for it. Connect with the Lord. Um, but I'm not trying to say this either. I'm not trying to tell people how to... I'm not trying to sit there and tell people um, about this wedding experience I had this past weekend. I'm not trying to relive that glory. That's not what the point of this time is either. I'm really just saying how people dance at a wedding makes a really simple point that's a very important point. People dance differently with different people. Okay? They dance differently with different people. Just like the bride doesn't show her love in the exact same way to the groom as to her father on the dance floor, right? Although you don't see her giving butterfly kisses to her dad, you know, that's, that would be really awkward and uncomfortable, okay? So too with us, people don't love, that is dance the dance of love with each other the same way, depending on the person we dance differently. I think that's at the heart of what this passage is talking about. How do we dance with other people? How do we love other people? It looks different. Look, both husbands and wives, men and women, little recap, they both love. Okay? That's, they're both commanded to love. They both want love. Okay? But it looks different because they're men and women. It looks like loving respect for men, and it looks for cherishing love for women. Because feeling respected and feeling special are what each gender is all about. Okay? Parents and children, young and old, both are called to love and to be loved. But that love looks different. It looks like loving honor for parents, and it looks like nurturing love for children. And for us, just a takeaway, it looks like granting forgiveness, giving forgiveness to bad parents, and it looks like understanding that our good parents need forgiveness too. This is what Paul's outlining in verses 18 through 21. Do you see that? That's what, that's what he's driving at. That's what we discussed two weeks ago. And that's why this is, the, again, a sequel. I know two weeks is a long time to wait for a sequel, but think about movies and you'll be okay. Um, you should know that Paul's talking about slavery and the working world in the same way that he was talking about marriage, he's talking about families. He's telling us it's a dance that we, that we, and we love and dance differently with different partners. But unlike a wedding, the music never changes. The music is always the same. It's always and forever. Jesus is loving life. Jesus is loving death. And Jesus is loving resurrection. No matter who we are relating to, no matter who we're dancing with, the same music is going on. It's the gospel message. And we're doing the same thing. We're listening to that music, which is faith. And obedience looks like dance stepping to that music that we're hearing. 
All right? That should seem familiar for some of you. But let's keep it simple. The point of our passage today, Colossians chapter 4, verses 22, sorry, 3, verse 22, through Colossians 4, verse 1, is this. Love is a dance that looks different with different people in our lives. If you haven't gotten that by now, I don't know what to tell you. I've said that a hundred times. <laughs> but the music that moves our feet is always the same. Jesus' love for us. Okay? So, um, we're going to look tonight at the dance of work and of different social statuses. The dance of work involves an employer and an employee. It involves a boss and a worker. And just like we say the dance of different ages in family and different genders and marriage, we're also going to look at the dance of different statuses and work. But look, before we can go into the detail about the different dance moves, we've got to talk about the dance itself, don't we? I mean, think about this passage for a second. We need to address the objections that people are having to this passage. What people are, what Paul, we think, Paul is saying and what he's not saying in this passage. It's especially controversial, these verses. And so it's going to look a little differently. I'm not going to break down the passage by verses, and we're going to talk about it that way. I'm going to take two sweeping glances at this passage. First, we're going to talk about whether we should dance like this at all. Whether there's some sense, something valid about the work of dance, or the dance of work, excuse me. Whether these verses have something valid to say about that at all. Okay? Then the second thing we're going to do is look at the what or the, or the how of these verses. What does it look like to dance and work? What does it look like to relate to your boss or if you're a boss to your employee? Okay? So that's how we're going to go forward. So um, that's, let's begin with it. What, is this passage even worth talking about? Is this a passage I should just skip over and get in the fetal position and duck and cover over? Okay, is that what I should have done? I should have skipped it and been like, oh, I'm sorry, we ran out of time. Let's go to the next thing. Uh, some people are nodding. <laughs> okay. uh, it's one of the most difficult verses in the, in the Bible. It just helps you. Verse 22, let's just do that. Slaves obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters. Slaves obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters. Look, I know that in this room, a lot of different opinions are flying around about that verse. I just do. Okay. A lot of different opinions are flying out of myself right now in my own heart. Some of you are definitely feeling discouraged about the Bible right now with this passage. You're either firmly on that side, that half embarrassed side that says, I believe this, help my own belief, or you're severely disappointed in doubt, thinking, how could this possibly be true? How could this Bible be possibly true? And really, like, there's another faction of, you, of folks here that are saying, I'm not even going to go there tonight. I'm tired. Um, I don't really want to hurt my heart. <laughs> I'm just not going to go there. And what I'm begging you is to go there, to wrestle with this with me. Because according to a guy named Tim Keller, who is responsible for much of this talk, okay, just heads up, he's a pastor in New York, he says that the issue of slavery is really at the heart of a lot of our doubts about the Bible. Issues like slavery, okay? This keeps us in suspended doubt instead of faith. And here's what he says. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, if the Bible's wrong about slavery, then who knows what other parts of the Bible are wrong. He says he hears that on a daily basis in New York City. If the Bible's wrong about slavery, then who knows what other parts the Bible's wrong about. Okay, so that's what we're wrestling with tonight. Okay, so I've really just set the bar infinitely high. Let's see if Jesus can jump it. Um... And here's really, my, here's really my point, okay? What, and this is really important for us to imagine, what if we're understanding this verse and these verses 
and correct it. What if it's not that it's like really difficult grammar, okay, like lots of complex sentences and compound sentences and whatever else? What if it's not actually like big, impossible words? But what if it's actually that we have these unexamined assumptions that we're bringing to this text? What if it's these things that we think it's saying something when it's saying another thing? What if it's actually going on, and we think when we say, we hear the word slavery, we think something that the Bible's not saying at all? Let's just imagine that for a second, okay? I think it's a, probably a pretty good thing to think about. If you look at verse uh, 22 with me again, uh, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Um, you're reading that through American eyes, most of you. Okay? You, when you hear slavery, you're thinking race-based, new world, African slavery. And that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about Greco-Roman slavery. Very, very different. We assume that every slave was taken by kidnapping and because they were black. That's not what Paul's talking about. Look, if you look in other parts of what Paul's saying, look at 1 Timothy 1.10. He forbids kidnapping. The very basis of New World African race-based slavery. Okay? Look at just earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. There, Paul was arguing against racism. Again, at the root of New World slavery. He's saying there's no race. There is no Greek, no Jew, no black, no white in Jesus Christ. So in reality, the kind of slavery Paul's talking to is very, very different than what we assume it is. Don't take my word on it. Let's listen to an expert, Murray Harris. He has four ways of describing the differences between the kinds of slavery, and they're very revealing. Okay, so you've got Greco-Roman on one side, New Testament times, and you've got the American experience, the New World slavery on the other. Okay? He says, look, slaves in the New Testament looked and acted and lived exactly like everyone else. Okay? Same race, same clothing, same speech. That's very different than the New World slavery. Second, slaves were often, were often more educated, not less than their, than their slave owners. Another huge difference. Slaves averaged 10-year terms of slavery, not lifetime, and they were oftentimes at the latest released by their late 30s. It's a very different form of slavery, right? Um, finally, slaves tended to make and keep more money than the average free worker. Okay, just a person that's laboring on their own. Okay, like a tenant farmer or whatever else, okay? And here's the, that last point, number four, is really important. And it brings me to another unexamined assumption, another under, unexamined thing that we think the text is saying, but it's not. I think when we read this, we automatically believe in the superiority of our time over any other time, past, present, or future. Or certainly past and future, because our time is present. Anyway, um, this assumption is best called chronological snobbery by Owen Barfield, okay? It means that we think of ourselves way too highly and we think of other people way too low, especially time periods. We believe that compared with our day, the Bible is backwards, the Bible is culturally regressive, it's behind the times. But I want you to hear this description of a modern day, of modern day factories all over the world in South, South Asia, and tell me what this sounds like. Does this sound like slavery? Listen. The workday is long, 14 hours in Sri Lanka, 16 in southern China, 12 in the Philippines. The management is military style. The supervisors are often abusive. The wages are below subsistence. The work, um, the work level, is, level is skill is tedious, and the skill is low. 
These workers in that environment, slow, monotonous, terrible conditions, abusive environment, 16 hours a day. The workers are mostly young women who have this choice, this free choice. I can be in poverty, go into prostitution, or work in near poverty in the factory. That's their choice. Tell me what that sounds like. That sounds like slavery. That sounds like slavery. By definition, that lack of choice is slavery. Today, right now, in another part of the world. And according to sources like the New York Times, what I have in my pocket, an iPhone, and what maybe many what I have on my desktop, a MacBook, and what I have in my house, okay, an iPad, all were produced by this slavery. These conditions. Okay? So I'm not telling you to go quit school and boycott globalization. Okay, that's not what I'm saying, because I'd be a hypocrite, because again, I own all those things. Okay, so what I am saying though is look, we need to think about the consequences of what we buy. And think about what we're contributing to you. That's a hard that's hard for me. Again, I own all those things. Okay, so I'm not just telling you something, I'm telling myself something. But beyond free trade, my point is really this that maybe the Bible isn't as far behind the times as we think it is. Maybe it's speaking to us right here, right now, in a way that we can understand. Look, I understand that um, I'm telling you that we're throwing rocks at windows when we live in a glass house. Do you get that? There's a lot of, a lot of what's called hypocrisy that's going on here. But I think also, you can also sit there and say, sit, my objection still stands. That's still slavery. And Paul's still talking to it. And still interacting with it. Look, I don't, you could say, I don't care if Greco-Roman slavery is better than another kind of slavery, or we commit slavery in some form or fashion. But please, look, I'm disappointed. And we should be disappointed at some level. I mean, we want Paul to be the social revolutionary. We want him to like raise up in arms and tell all the slaves to run away, and all the masters to let go of their slaves. And I think rightly so at some level. But before you dismiss the Bible spineless and culturally relative, you need to think about this. Don't overlook what Paul is really saying in this passage and other passages. Paul is by no means condoning slavery. He's not condoning slavery. Okay? In books like Philemon, at verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, he tells slaves to get free if you can. He tells masters to let go of their slaves if they can. And even in this passage, Paul says something very, very countercultural and very culturally subversive. Believe it or not, Paul's telling us and telling his world and his time that slaves have hearts and souls. Do you understand how, how controversial that would have been in the Greco-Roman times? Where everyone, the common assumption was that slaves were property. They were things. They had no hearts. They had no minds. There were utensils like garden shovels and rakes. Paul is saying even more in verse chapter 4, verse 1, that they deserve just and fair treatment. Do you get that? This cuts against the predominant, almost universal view of the time. And I hope you understand that this subversive thought that Paul has in this passage is exactly behind the reason that you're protesting slavery right now. The reason that we're protesting slavery in America right now, historically speaking, is because Paul and his thought about human dignity and slaves... Let me give you an example. Let me explain that more. Okay? 
Historically, passages like this one contain a higher law that people like William Wilberforce and John Newton appealed to in order to abolish slavery in the British Empire. Christians appealing to, this, to the Bible. Passages like this. Okay? Furthermore, in America, close to home, Martin Luther King Jr., a Christian minister, appealed to passages like this in the Bible to abolish the remnants of slavery in America. Just read his letter from the Birmingham jail. That's all you have to do. You'll see him appealing to the Bible when the law of the land is broken. So Paul and the Bible give their audience, past and present, what we truly need. Present-oriented advice. We live in social inequality, and we will until Jesus comes again. But we also get future hope of change. We can make things more equal. People all have inherent dignity. Do we get that? Listen to how one commentator puts this, hope of change. The truth of the gospel about what true freedom is and how to get it in Jesus will do far more to solve social questions than any number of bayonets. What he means there, I'll read it again. The truth of the gospel will do far more to solve social questions than any number of bayonets. And what he means there is the message of human freedom found in Jesus Christ changes hearts and minds more than weapons of war. You see, the gospel, this passage, is a stubborn, small mustard seed. It's planted in the hearts and the minds of those people who hear it. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows over time. Until it's a beautiful, big tree that gives shade, and a home, and rest, and goodness to all of humankind. Okay. So you've heard my defense of why we should even study this. Let's look at what it says. I'm going to do this very briefly, okay, because it's hot and we're tired. Um, so let me do this very briefly, okay, but let's talk about, it's very, very practical and helpful to think about this. Everyone in this room has worked or is working a job. You're in school, that's a job for you right now, okay. Um, you've got people over you, maybe you're over other people. This, these verses are going to help us with that. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1, very briefly, Okay. This is what it means to be an employer, a boss, or a manager. What does it mean to lead in the dance of work? Okay, what does it mean to be the lead partner in the dance of work? Look, most of you maybe aren't there, but you will be there. Maybe you are there. That's great. As a college pastor, I never thought I would have an employee. I never thought I would be in a boss. And here I am. RUF assigns me a, an employee, someone to work on staff with RUF. So whether or not you think you're going to have one, you probably are going to be in charge of some people at some level. Okay? And here's how you handle it. What this is telling us, verse 1 is telling us, is how to be a good boss, not a bad boss. You have to treat your employees, you have to treat the people under you in the workplace with justice and fairness. Because you work for a boss, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is more than just and more than fair. Do you get that? That's the takeaway. Um, I'll tell you a brief story. When I, was in, when I was in graduate school, we had a Christian counselor come and speak, Diane Langberg, and it was a sexual harassment seminar, and she said this that totally rocked my world and continues to rock my world. She said this, if something inappropriate happens between you and someone underneath you, an employee, if something inappropriate happens between you and someone underneath you, an employee, it's your fault. Because you have the power in that relationship. Yeah. That's hard to hear, but if you think about it for a while, it makes a lot of sense. 
I think what it means is that no matter how much you want that power or don't want that power, how much you try to forget about that power or do forget about that power over someone, that person underneath you never forgets about that power. They never forget that they're underneath you. No matter how much how good of friends you think you are. The power to hire or fire, promote or demote is always in the picture for the employee. So present and future managers, we need to err on the side of justice and deal fairly with everyone, rather than give out favors or make friends. That's kind of what Paul's saying. Briefly, the second piece here, okay? Verses 22 through 25. We see what it means to be an employee. Again, think about your part-time job, your summer job, your full-time job, maybe the job you're working right now. That's all we've got to do is to visualize that. He says, and basically, if you want to summarize it, it says, work hard with pure motives. Work hard with pure motives. We don't work hard to earn our boss's affection with eye service or people-pleasing, but we work for the Lord. What does that mean? Two things. Two things. First, we must see our jobs as an act of worship. I love this quote from George Herbert, and even if it's hot and tired, we need to hear it. Teach me, my God and King, and all things to see what I do in anything, to do it as for thee. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that for the action fine. I'll read it again because it's poetry and it rhymes, and it's very difficult. Um, <laughs> teach me, my God and King, and all things to see, and what I do in anything, to do it as for thee. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes that and the action fine. Here's what he's saying. Whatever you do, you're a a cook, you're a waitress, you're a waiter, you run the cash register, you go and do the supply chain at the grocery store, whatever it is, that labor, no matter how disgusting, no matter boring, has an act of worship to it if it's for Jesus. If you do it for God, he turns it into gold. Jesus isn't just gold, he's the agent that turns everything else into gold that that he touches. Do you get that? Like, no matter what you're doing, no matter what kind of jerk you work for, if you do it for Jesus and do it in his name, it changes the very act of work to a worship. And it changes its outcome to gold. Second, we work in our jobs not to gain approval of God. Not to gain acceptance of God, but because we already have his approval. And this is the gospel, and this makes no sense to people outside of the gospel. This makes no sense to the working world. The working world says this, I don't understand how God gives you pay before you do the job. And this is what union with Christ means. This is what all of Colossians is driving at. You've got everything in Jesus. You've got everything you could possibly ever want in Jesus Christ. What happened to him happens to you. What God gives him, he's giving to you. If you believe in Jesus. And that's the whole point. So you're no longer working to earn a wage. You've got grace. It's a gift. That's the whole point. He's like a father. He gives good gifts. Not on an hourly rate. Not for work done. But because, just like a father, he's your father. And you're his son or daughter. And that makes no sense to the working world. But look, I'm just going to end it right here, okay? At the end of the day, love, dancing with people, relationships. Do we get what this is about? It's about compassion. Ultimately, this is about compassion. It's about seeing the other person. If your employer is seeing the employee, if your employee is seeing the employer, it's about seeing 
a female if you're male, or a male if you're female. Okay? It's about seeing someone older than you, or if you're older, seeing someone younger than you, and understanding where they're coming from. What their story is, what makes them glad, what makes them sad. That's compassion. That's what the very root of this whole thing is about. We've got to surrender. We've got to move into that difference. But how do we do that? There's a scene in To Kill Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Probably most of you read it in junior high. But it's a beautiful book that bears repeating. Um, Scout's the narrator. She goes um, to the porch of the local haunted house owned by a guy named Boo Radley, um, which I love that name. Uh, anyone named Boo? I think that was way well before rap. So, um, anyway. Um, don't mind me. I'm just talking. Um, but... So he, she goes to the front porch of the local haunted house, and she starts to kind of visualize the world from Boo Radley's perspective, from the owner of that house's perspective. She sees the street, and she sees Miss Maudie's and Miss Stephanie's and all the houses along the street, right? And she, she starts to think about the way that she played in that street with her brother Jem and her cousin and the, for the, over the course of the years and what Boo must have seen over those years. And Scout ends this experiment in compassion with this thought. You never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and you walk around in them. Just standing on the Radley porch was enough for me. You never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and you walk around in them. Do you get that's what love is? That's how we love our bosses and our employees. That's how we love our sisters, our fathers, our brothers, our roommates, and our friends, is standing in their shoes and walking around for a while. Do you understand that, like, Jesus originally, from the beginning, 2,000 years ago, stood in our shoes and he walked around for a while? Do you get what that means? Do you get what that means, that he's been there and done that, and he's given the Holy Spirit to the people who believe that he's been there and done that? So that we can go there and do that for other people, because Jesus has gone there and done that for us. So that we can stand on their front porch, just like Jesus stood on our front porch. And we can look into their lives, just like he stood in, looked into our lives. So that we can see how to lead and when to follow in the dance of love. Just like Jesus became a servant from being a master who followed and led and leads and follows. Who stood on our porch and walked in our shoes for a while. It's the only God that's done that in real time in real history. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for this time that we got to spend together and talk about a really difficult topic. I pray that some of that would filter through the heat and the exhaustion and the, uh, the difficulty of the topic. I pray that you would move our hearts to believe in your word that's true. Um, that's true even when we question whether it's true. That I pray that you'd be with us as we think about our jobs, as we think about being a student, um, what it means to follow, what it means to lead, and how that dance is a dance of love. That you danced for us in your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.